think heat, you know, uh, a need for food, water, uh, shelter. When Moses describes that great and terrible wilderness trek from Sinai all the way to Kadesh Barnea. But we can track back further than that if you think about leaving Egypt and how difficult that would have been. Granted, they wanted out. They had been slaves. They were oppressed. But, but still, they'd been here 400 years. You get used to stuff, even the bad. And they had to travel from there, from, from leaving Egypt to getting to Mount Sinai, roughly three months. And then there were two years at Sinai, two years of training, a two-year retreat with God to train up and prepare and, and, and teach them what they needed to be taught, disciple them so that they could make what we talked about was an 11-day journey from Sinai to Kadesh Barnea and then to be prepared to enter the promised land. And all the things, I was thinking about this today, just the things if you were going to go on a wilderness trek, if you were going to go on, say, a week-long hike, what would you take in preparation and what would you expect to find along the way? And you'd, you'd think maybe some animals here and there, depending on where you're hiking. Snakes, you know. You want to make sure you have water. And so there are different things you would think that could make the wilderness trek, the journey, difficult. We could make a list. I doubt any of us would put on the list rebellion. Especially after two years, again, of training and teaching and discipleship at Mount Sinai. And yet rebellion is the biggest issue for the children of Israel. And we will see it yet again tonight. It's remarkable after what has already taken place. After the number of times the children of Israel have rebelled to the point that God says, okay, you're through. We're not going into the promised land at all. Turn around and go back. Turn around, we're going to hike for a while, 38 years, <laughs> because there needed to be more training and a new generation had to be raised up. But rebellion is really the earmark of the journeys of Israel from Egypt all the way to setting foot in the promised land. Rebellion's the issue. Rebellion, rebellion is the threat and the danger, and it's what they faced. And we know that that's how chapter 14 ended. They went up heedlessly, verse 44 of chapter 14, to the ridge of the hill country, neither the ark of the covenant of the Lord nor Moses left the camp. And the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and struck them and beat them down as far as Horma, Horma meaning devoted to destruction. And that's how chapter 14 ended. So much for obeying the Lord and having faith in the Lord. Because their faith failed, God said, okay, you can't go into the promised land. And they said, well, we'll go anyway. We talked about that on Sunday. You would hope by now something would be learned, something would be understood. Sin nature is a hard thing to crack. And rebellion is at the heart of the sin nature. Let's, let's get into this a bit and, and you'll see what I'm talking about. We begin not with rebellion, but with a whole new set or, or a, a revived set of laws, which is interesting timing. And I think it's exactly where, well, of course, it's where God wanted it to be, but you'll see why. Verse 15, uh, verse 1 of chapter 15, now the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When you enter the land where you are to live, which I am giving you, then make an offering by fire to the Lord, a burnt offering, or a sacrifice to fulfill a special vow, or as a free will offering or in your appointed times to make a soothing offering to the Lord from the herd or from the flock. 
The one who presents his offering shall present to the Lord a grain offering, one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-fourth of a hen of oil. And you shall prepare wine for the drink offering, one-fourth of a hen with the burnt offering, or for the sacrifice for each lamb, or for a ram. You shall prepare as a grain offering two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-third of a hen of oil, and for the drink offering, you shall offer one-third of a hint of wine as a soothing aroma to the Lord. When you prepare a bull as a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a special vow or for peace offerings to the Lord, then you shall offer with the bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-half a hint of oil. And you shall offer as a drink offering one-half a hint of wine as an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord. And thus it shall be done for each ox, for each ram, for each of the male lambs or of the goats, according to the number that you prepare, so you shall do for every according to their number. All who are native shall do these things in this manner, in presenting an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord. If an alien sojourns with you, or one who may be among you throughout your generations, and he wishes to make an offering by fire as a soothing aroma to the Lord, just as you do, so he shall do. As for the assembly, there shall be one statute for you and for the alien who sojourns with you, a perpetual statute throughout your generations. As you are, so shall the alien be before the Lord. There is to be one law and one ordinance for you and for the alien who sojourns with you. Now, if you're at home watching, hang on a minute. Don't turn over to Netflix yet. People here are stuck, but I know you have options there with your buttons. Hang on. What's going on here? We, we, we come out of the rebellion and the forced fighting of the children of Israel in chapter 14, and next thing we know in chapter 15, we're talking about hens of oil and burnt offerings and grain offerings. What, what's, what's happening here? These are all the specs that God is giving for burnt and free will offerings, depending on the animal that's sacrificed, and that's how it's broken down. I'll help you see that better. Sin offerings and guilt offerings, remember there are five different offerings? burnt offerings, peace offerings, grain offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings. Well, the sin offerings and guilt offerings are not part of this because they're always the same. So what was offered with the sin offering is always the same thing, same animal, same stuff offered, same with the guilt offering. Well, these are different because in these other offerings, there are different animals that are offered. So based on the kind of animal offered, the grain and wine or drink offering that's given with it were of different amounts. Does that make sense? Perfect. Okay. The law is also the same for the native born as it is the Israelite, as it is for the foreigner. And here's the breakdown. So you, you want to get this down just in case you're out in the wilderness making offerings or, or in the promised land. If the offering is from herd or flock, that is a lamb or a kid, a young goat, it must include a grain offering. This is the equivalent now. Two quarts flour mixed with one quart oil and a drink offering of one quart wine. If a ram is offered, the grain offering must be four quarts flour mixed with one and a quarter quarts oil and a drink offering of one and a quarter quarts of wine. If a bull is offered, the grain offering is six quarts of flour mixed with two quarts of oil and a drink offering of two quarts of wine. So now that you got all that down and you are spiritually so satisfied what in the world's going on? What is this for? Why these various yet very specific amounts? You ever ask those questions? You should. When you're studying through the Bible and you read through something and you go, 
That makes no sense to me at all. What is that even, that's so superfluous or, or arbitrary or strange. Why does God do this? Listen, understand. The Lord doesn't tell us exactly why these particular amounts per animal, but what we can understand is this. Holiness is exacting. Righteousness is absolutely precise. What God is teaching the people, and you and me by extension, is that all of these requirements of the law, the 613 laws given in Torah, and these specifics are for them to understand. You don't just come walking up to God as is and go, hey, what's up? He is a perfect, righteous God. Holiness is absolutely perfect. And, and to meet that measurement, those requirements, you gotta be perfect. You gotta get this right. They would realize, obviously, that they couldn't get it right. And God's gonna speak to that as well. But understand this, here's the good news. When it comes to Jesus, you can be sure that the exact, perfect, precise requirements have been fully met. The verse I opened up with, Hebrews 9, 12, says, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, Jesus entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Perfectly, exactly, precisely as God needed it to be done because God is a perfect God. So the sacrifice had to be perfect. Now you might say, okay, I understand that, but why, why is this here right on the heels of their rebellion? Look back at verse two. What does God say? Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land where you are to live, which I am giving you. I call this the great wilderness reset. Here following their rebellion, at the border of the promised land, the very next thing God says to them is, when you enter the land, you need to do it this way. And if they were paying attention, what they would realize is that God just said, we're gonna enter the land. He is still with them. He is still for them. The land is still going to belong to Israel. And so with these specs, the Lord begins to revive their hope, at least the hope of Israel TNG, the next generation. The next generation of Israel is starting to realize and learn that they are now being trained because they are going into the land. The trip's not off. The promise isn't canceled. You know what's amazing to me, and listen, understand, for personal application for us, God knows no bitterness. God does not do resentment. Yes, he will reprove. He will rebuke reprimand, chasten, discipline those whom he loves. But different than you and me, the Lord never holds a grudge. So even though chapter 14 just happened, he's on to the next thing because God doesn't have a need to hold a grudge, to be angry over time, to say, I, I remember what you did to me. I forgave you, but I'm still not happy about it. I understand, you said you're sorry, okay, we're, we're fine, but give me a minute. No, the Lord, when it's over, it's over. Because unlike us, he doesn't have the need to be proven right. And so he does not hold a grudge. God is not a man that he should lie. Numbers 23, 19, 
nor a son of man, that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? If he says, you're going into the land, you're going into the land. Now, there may be a delay, in this case, 38 years, but you're going in. And so he says, when you come into the land, this is so comforting, so encouraging, that even when I offend God, even when I sin against God, even when I rebel, when I repent, when I recognize that forgiveness, I need to recognize, you need to recognize something else as well, that the Lord's not holding on to it. There's no grudge. There's no looking back and going, yeah, but you, <laughs> 10 years ago, we never really dealt with that. I'm still a little upset about these things. <coughs> that is not the Lord. Verse 17, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when you enter the land where I bring you, he repeats it again. Then it shall be that you shall eat of the food of the land and you shall lift up an offering to the Lord. Of the first of your dough, you shall lift, do you give the first of your dough? It's a great application right there to tithing, isn't it? A first offering of my dough belongs to the Lord. That's what he's saying. Of the first of your dough, you shall lift up, lift up a cake as an offering, as the offering of the threshing floor, so you shall lift it up. From the first of your dough, you shall give to the Lord an offering throughout your generations. Now, the word dough there is also translated coarse meal. So this is a, a meal offering. It's the first fruits offering is being repeated here. And so he's reminding them, this next generation of Israel, when you come into the land, I expect the same thing that I told your fathers, and I'm now telling you. A first fruits offering, the first of your dough, belongs to me, he says, when you enter the land that I will, where I will bring you. Again, the great reset. I'm resetting the promise. We're starting up. We're going to go in. So in spite of the rebellion at Kadesh or Kadesh, and even trying to force their way into the land, God is still going to do it. He's still going to bring Israel in. Deuteronomy 31 verse 8 says, The Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you, Moses telling the people. He will not fail you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Or as the Hebrew pastor wrote, chapter 13 verse 5, he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Followers of Jesus, the promise of his presence does not depend on our faithfulness or stability. It depends on his. So when Jesus says, Matthew 28, 20, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, guess what that means? To the end of the age, he's with us. You got it. <laughs> there are no qualifiers in this statement. Think about that. I'm with you to the end of the age. Yeah, but what if I stutter step? I'm with you, Rick. What if I stumble, Lord? I'm with you. What if I collapse in a heap? I'm with you to the very end of the age. What if I disappoint you, Father? What if I blow it? What if I sin again? I'm with you to the very end of the age. He didn't say unless. He didn't say except. He promises to be with you. Now, some might say, oh, okay, so I can do whatever I want and sin however I want. I suppose you can. You want to be stupid. Do you want to fall down, cut up your knees and bruise your face and cause yourself pain and heartache and sorrow and difficulty and miss the goodness of God? I, I guess you could. Why would you? I am with you to the very end of the age. You give him your heart, and he promises I'm going to see you through whatever it takes. 
even in spite of your rebellions. It's not an invitation to sin or to be faithless because you know the other side of it is God calls us to be faithful because he's faithful. He calls us to be holy because he's holy. Not because there's something in us that you know, can achieve it. But he says, hey, pursue holiness because that's who I am. And be faithful because I, I'm faithful. And so the next thing God does in all of this is he now addresses sin. And note this, uh, verse 22. <coughs> Excuse me. But when you unwittingly fail and do not observe all these commandments which the Lord has spoken to Moses, even all that the Lord has commanded you through Moses from the day when the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, then it shall be if it is done unintentionally without the knowledge of the congregation that all the congregation shall offer one bull for a burnt offering as a soothing aroma to the Lord with its grain offering and its drink offering according to the ordinance and one male goat for a sin offering. Verse 25, then the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the sons of Israel and they will be forgiven. For it was an error. And they have brought their offering, an offering by fire to the Lord and their sin offering before the Lord for their error. So all the congregation of the sons of Israel will be forgiven with the alien who sojourns among them, for it happened to all these people through error. Okay, so as if returning to square one with these people, the Lord gives instruction now on three sin attitudes. Three sin attitudes. And the first one is unwitting sin. Unwitting sin. And by the way, we are all capable of all three of these attitudes. But unwitting sin, this is what we might call the sin of omission. We omit to do something that we know we're supposed to do. Or maybe we don't know we're supposed to do it. Maybe we don't realize that's the right thing to do. And so we omit to do it. Something in the requirements of the law is overlooked or forgotten or not done exactly as requested. It's missed inadvertently. That's unwitting sin. And there's an offering for such ignorance. Hallelujah. Verse 27, also, if one person sins unintentionally, then he shall offer a one-year-old female goat for a sin offering, and the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who goes astray when he sins unintentionally, making atonement for him that he may be forgiven. And you shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally, for him who is native among the, sin, the sons of Israel, and for the alien who sojourns among them. So now we come to not unwitting sin, but unintentional sin. What's the difference? This is a sin of commission. That it's, it's a sin where you knew better, but you did it. But it's unintentional. There's no malice aforethought. This is not like you're planning to go out and sin against the Lord. It's not rebellious sin. It's just you felt like doing it and you did it. Usually with that kind of sin, we feel bad pretty quick. We realize what we've done and go, oh, why did I do that again? Unintentional sin. It's sin, but it's, it's accidental. It's not intended. It's not planned out. And again, there's a sacrifice for that. So a sacrifice if you sin without even knowing it, sin of omission. Sacrifice for a sin where you, you knew it, but you really didn't mean to, but you did. Well, there's a sacrifice for that too. But in verse 30, the person who does anything defiantly, whether he is a native or an alien, that one is blaspheming the Lord. 
and that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment and that person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him, the sin of defiance. That is a sin of commission with intention. Malicious sin. And there's no sacrifice for that. You intended you were rebellious against the Lord, bold and brazen and, and defiant. By the, word, by the way, the word defiantly here, the one who does anything defiantly, it's, it's an interesting phrase in the Hebrew. It's actually a Hebrew euphemism, and it means with high hand. Bayad, yad is hand. Ramah, high. The high it's high-handed sin. This, this euphemism for insubordination, a defiant attitude, yeah. I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm sinning because I can do what I want to do. We used to say in the 90s, talk to the hand. That's, that's what we're talking about. Read the palm. That's high-handed sin. We're just going, I don't care, God. I know you said don't do this. I'm going to do it anyway. High-handed sin. I, I tried to look up because I'm trying to stay relevant and current. What would be texting for talk to the hand? If any of you know, please let me know because I'm curious. What, what would be the texting phrase? What, what would teenagers text, you know? We, we went from talk to the hand to read the palm to whatever. I like that one. You know, kind of just the indifference. I don't know what it is now where you're just telling someone, I'm not listening, la, 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 na, na, I'm not going to hear you. So what? You ghost them. That's it. That's what this is, ghosting the Holy Ghost. Huh? Huh? Ghosting God, saying, I don't care what you say. I'm, you know, I'm turning you off. I'm not listening. I'm doing my own thing. And God says in verse 31, his guilt will be on him. You don't want to be in that place. Mark chapter 3, verse 28, Jesus put a real fine point on it. He said, truly, I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men. And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Why is that? Listen, when God cuts off forgiveness of sin from a person, it's not, listen to this, it's not because God is done forgiving, it's because the person, the defiant sinner, is done receiving God knows the heart. And when a person is in such defiance, they're gonna do whatever they wanna do and they don't care what God has to say about it. There's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You can't be forgiven of a sin you don't want to be forgiven of. And someone who gets to the point, literally, of blaspheming God, that is ghosting the Holy Ghost. That is saying, talk to the hand. That is saying, I don't wanna have anything to do with you. It's shutting off the only one who can bring freedom and forgiveness and, and a washing and a cleansing of guilt. So it's blasphemy. It's a hardened heart. The Hebrew pastor puts it like this, Hebrews 6, 4. In the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it's impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. And of course, Christians hear that text and go, whoa, wait a minute, I can lose my salvation? No. no. Why would you think that? 
Well, because he just said in the case of those, well, where's your relationship with Jesus? Do you want to lose your salvation? Do you know him? It's so funny. We get into these, these debates, theological debates, about things that are they're not applicable. The point of, of, the, of the passage there is it's not a text on falling away so much as a text on hardness of heart. What the Hebrew pastor is saying, if someone knows Jesus and knows the, has tasted of the goodness of God and then walks away, of course there's nothing left. The heart would have to be rocked solid to walk away from the goodness of God like that. And if you're sitting here saying, yeah, but I walked away from church, that's not walking away from God. Maybe I'm sounding a little wild and out there on the fringe here, but because you haven't been in fellowship, you've hurt yourself, you've missed out, you haven't had the opportunity to grow in grace and, and in the knowledge of the Lord and be in his word and be with his people and worship it. You've missed out on that, granted. But because you've been out of fellowship, does that mean that you've walked away from God? The heart has to be rock solid to have been in a place where you even knew Jesus and then to walk away. So it's not a matter of can I lose my salvation? Jesus says, My father has you in his hand and no one can snatch you out of his hand. No one can snatch you out of my hand. I got you. So keep your eyes on him. Trust in him. Don't worry about losing your salvation. The issue is the heart. And now we get several examples of hard-hearted rebellion. And this all is a flow, a perfect flow through this section. Verse 32. Now, while the sons of Israel were in the wilderness, they found a man gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Stop right there. For you and for me, we might hear that and go, okay, that, that's a bummer. Probably shouldn't have been doing that. Give him a slap on the hand and send him back to his tent. Oh, no. This is very serious. Those who found him, verse 33, gathering wood, brought him to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation. And note this, they put him in custody because it had not been declared, or at least declared distinctly, what should be done with him. Let me just tell you what the Bible had said, what God had already said about what do you do with someone who breaks the Sabbath. First of all, Exodus 20, verse 8, in the Ten Commandments, he says, remember Shabbat to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God, and in it you shall do no work. That's an absolute statement. Do not work on the Sabbath day. Exodus 31, 14, the Lord says, you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. And if you hear that and say, that is really extreme for someone violating the Sabbath day, then I would say to you, you don't understand the Sabbath day. You don't understand what it means. You don't understand the depth, the significance, the value, the worth of it, or why God asked, asked for it or required it of Israel. And I can tell you that the seriousness of this, verse 33 again says, or 34, they put him in custody for it had not been declared what should be done to him. It had been declared. <laughs> Very clearly. It had been clearly articulated, but I really like their slow move on this. They knew, no doubt, what the scripture said, what the Lord had said should happen to someone who violates the Sabbath. But they're like, okay, but he was picking up sticks. Put him in custody and let's... 
Let's pray about it. That, that's always the best thing to do. When you're in contact with a brother or sister and there's sin, you, you find, you discover that they've sinned or, or, or they've, they've done wrong or they're in rebellion of some kind, rather than throwing them under the bus as quick as possible, how about praying first? Whoa, don't rush to judgment. And they don't. They're careful because this is the first time that the Sabbath has been formally challenged. So they go, okay, put them in custody. Let's see what God has to say about it. Verse 35, then the Lord said to Moses, the man shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him with stones outside the camp. This is one of those passages, one of those stories where people who don't understand the nature of God will hear it and go, <laughs> now see, that's, I don't like that God. I like the New Testament God. I don't like the Old Testament God. Hey, same God. And he says in verse 36, it says, so all the congregation brought him outside the camp and stoned him to death with stones just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And again, without context, that may seem really extreme. Man, a game of pickup sticks that ends with a stoning. How, how, I can't, how do you work that out? Lest anyone think that this is overkill, pun intended, Psalm 19, verse 7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect restoring the soul. Testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, and the judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. So here we have both the law, which is perfect and restores the soul, and we have the judgments of the Lord with this man, and they are absolutely right. You might not like it. You might disagree from our limited human vantage point. But I can tell you, as far as righteousness is concerned, this was a perfect and absolute response. But understand that this example is right here because it comes in the context of defiance. This is a defiant sin. He wasn't just picking up a few sticks around the outside of his tent. There's intention. There's malice. There is violation of the Sabbath law here, and you could say this man is sticking it to God. <laughs> He's saying, I don't care what your law says. It's stupid. I don't agree with it. I'm going to do what I want to do. What are you going to do, stone me? It's defiance. That's what was going on in this guy's heart. His heart was hard against God to the point of rebellion. Well, how do you know? You might say, Rick, how, you can't read a heart. How do you know what was really going on in this guy's heart? I can't read a heart. You're right, but God can. God can. And this was a willful desecration of the Sabbath law. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 28 says, Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? God is teaching and training, but he's also dealing in pure righteousness here. Shabbat is highly significant. It's not just a day off. It's not a holiday at the end of the week. It's not a throw off your shoes and kick up your feet and chill for a day. It's Sabbath to the Lord. It's resting 
in him. It's teaching and training the people to trust in him. And it's God saying, I want you to rest because I'm a God of rest. And we will be together on that day. That's what it is for. And we misunderstand this, especially in our culture. Especially in our work it out culture. Let me put it this way. Anytime we pick up sticks in opposition to the Sabbath rest of God, it is a violation of defiance. What do you mean? The people said back in chapter 14, we'll fight our way into the land. Defiance. The man said, I can pick up sticks whenever I want. The law is stupid. Defiance. Some people today will say, I can get into heaven on my own. I don't need Jesus. You're picking up sticks. And sticks will not last. See, the thing is, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. That's what he called himself. He's the fulfillment of the Sabbath, which is why Sabbath was so highly significant in all the laws of Torah. It sits right in the middle of the Ten Commandments as huge significance because Sabbath points to the rest that you can only find in Jesus Christ. It's that important. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, Jesus says, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Yeah, we know that one, Pastor. We've heard that. Okay, how about this one? 1 Corinthians 3.11. No man can lay a foundation other than one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Yeah, we know that one too. Hey, listen. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, and you could add in sticks, each man's work will become evident. The day will show it because it is revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. What I'm getting at here is the foundation of Christ, Paul says, has been laid, and no wood, hay, straw, or sticks can build upon it and last and even things like gold, silver, precious stones, which represent something eternal here, even these things speak of lives that have been purified, yet saved by the grace of God in Christ Jesus, in whom you will find rest for your souls, only in him. What's going on here with this guy picking up sticks is high-handed labor. Talk to the hand, rebellion. It's human nature because human nature tends to take pride in our work. Of course we would think we could make ourselves good enough to get into heaven because we work at it. That's what we do. Just tell me what the rules are and I'll make it happen. I'll, I'll prove myself to you. And the Lord's saying, you can't prove yourself to, you, to me. And he gave them the Sabbath as early teaching to direct people to the Lord of the Sabbath, Jesus Christ. All we can know for certain about this story and this idea of picking up sticks is this was an act of absolute defiance of the human will over the will of God. A violation, a knowing violation from a hard heart or God wouldn't have called for such a penalty as he did. Verse 37. The Lord also spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corner of their garments. Wow, this is, if you just read this without context and understanding, you might feel like we're just going all over the place. Well, from drink offerings to, to sins to a man breaking the Sabbath, and now we're talking about tassels? Read on. 
shall make for themselves tassels, zitzit in the Hebrew, on the corners of their garments throughout their generations, and that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember. There's your purpose. All the commandments of the Lord, so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes, after which you played the harlot. And he's, this is coming in right after the sin of the guy violating Sabbath. So he's saying, look, I want to give you a mnemonic device, a way to remember the law and the commandments so that when you get up and you get dressed in the morning, you look down and you see that little blue tassel and you go, oh, that's right, I belong to the Lord. Oh, that's right, I need to follow him. He says, so that you remember, verse 40, to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord your God, he repeats. And so I want on your, what we would say today, the Jewish prayer shawls, I want you to have the zitzit. It's, it's a word, zitzit is a word that comes literally from the bloom of a flower. So it's this little ornamental fringe that was to serve as a reminder that I belong to the Lord. Every time I see it, I belong to him. It's why years ago I began a practice just in my own life of carrying a Bible around with me. To go on vacation, I take my Bible with me. When I was in high school, that was when it started. I took my Bible to school. Stuck it on right on the top of my books as I'm walking around from class to class just because I wanted to remind myself. I wasn't trying to say, hey, look at me, check me out. I'm, I'm this amazing Christian. It was, it was I knew if I'm carrying my Bible, I'd have a real hard time cussing in front of my friends. You, never mind. I'd have a real t hard time, you know, cheating on a test. My Bible's sitting there and I'm going, okay, don't do that. It, it was just a reminder for me. I didn't even really start reading it until I was like 35, but, but it was there. <laughs> it, was, it was to remind me of, of the Lord. I belong to him. And that's what the seat seat are. I think it's really cool. And you, you see them all over Israel today. You see Jewish people wearing the prayer shawl, and there's the seat seat normally coming out from under a shirt. You can see the tassels hanging down there. You remember when Jesus was on the way to the home of the synagogue leader's dying daughter? Remember, he's, he's among the crowd, and he's um, heading that way because they've said, your, your daughter's dying. So he says, please come. His name is Jairus, and and Jesus says, yeah, I'll come with you. And Luke chapter 8, verse 42 says, as he went, the crowds were pressing against him. And a woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years and could not be healed by anyone came up behind him and touched the fringe of his cloak. And immediately her hemorrhage stopped. Jesus said, who's the one who touched me? While they were all denying it, which I think is really funny because it sounds kind of like, you know, something we would do. No, I didn't touch him. Did you touch him? I didn't touch him. No, it wasn't me. And Peter blurts out, Master, the people are crowding and pressing in on you. You mean who touched you? Everybody's touching you, Lord. And Jesus says, who's the one who touched me? He said, wait, no. He said, someone did touch me, for I was aware that power had gone out from me. I just like to read that. I mean, I read that verse, I tell you what, every single time I read Jesus saying, I was aware that power had gone out from me. I get a little, hoo-hoo. <laughs> she touched the fringe, the zitzit of Jesus' prayer shawl. Why, why would she go for that? Why would she 
reach for that. Interesting, Mark tells us, chapter 6, verse 56, that wherever he entered villages or cities or countryside, they were laying the sick in the marketplaces and imploring him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak. Same thing. And as many as touched it were being cured. Grab the tassel. I just need to grab hold of Jesus' tassel and I'll be healed. And it wasn't that the tzitzit itself was like magical. It represented to the Jewish people belonging to the Lord. And this is one where they were all believing because of the miracles, because of the teaching, because of what they were seeing. They were believing this one is sent from the Lord. At minimum, this is a powerful prophet of God. But many whisperings were going around, is he Mashiach? Is he our Messiah? And they're reaching for that. And they want, just, I want to touch. Because you'll, you'll see on the corner of the prayer shawl, it's actually a, a square material. And oftentimes there's writing on it, which would speak of the position or the role. If you were a doctor, it, it would say something about you being a doctor right there on that, on that square. And the seat seat would hang off of it. And it, it, it signified position and place and role and authority. But most of all, belonging. This is one who belongs to the Lord. And they would touch it. And in this case, Jesus said, I was aware that power had gone out of me. Listen, when you feel like you're on the fringe and you're reaching out to get some help, remember that the power is Jesus himself. It's him. He is the power. I felt power go out for me. He didn't see, hey, whoa. He didn't say, my seat seat just sparked. He said, I felt the power come from me because that's where the power is. It is in Jesus Christ. Oh, and by the way, notice, recognize that the seat seat itself was to be blue, heavenly blue. Blue is truly, it's the color of heaven. That's the mentality in the scriptures and in the Bible when blue material is used, it's a picture of that which is heavenly. And so when you're feeling blue, look to heaven. Look to heaven. If you need power, you're feeling weak, reach for Jesus. If you're feeling down and depressed, look to heaven. I'm not talking about the sky. Listen, Paul said in Colossians 3 verse 1, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is. That is, your follower of Jesus, look up. Look to the heavens. Look to your future. He says, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Politics and pandemics and problems and panics. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, you also will be revealed with him in glory. So look up. Well, verse 1 of chapter 16. Now, Korah, the son of Yitzhar, the son of Kohat, son of Levi, with Dathan and Aviram, the sons of Eliav and On, the son of Pelet, the sons of Reuben, took action. Wow, they sound important. They rose up before Moses, together with some of the sons of Israel, 250 leaders of the congregation, chosen in the assembly, men of renown. In other words, celebrities in the ranks, popular dudes. Heroes, men of renown, the phrase is used three times in the Bible. 
I've told our, our staff several times, I think I've shared with you, I, I really, the older I get and the longer I'm in church life and ministry, the more I abhor Christian celebrity. I don't think there's room for it. I think it gets us into all kinds of trouble. Those who follow after popular, you know, preachers or, 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 or musicians or artists or whatever, you know, it's just, I, and I, I love good Christian music and I have my favorites and I love good preaching and I've got my favorite teachers and Bible uh, preachers out there. But the idea of elevating anyone, there's, we, we elevate one, right? And his name is Jesus. And so there are no men or women of renown in the Bridge Christian Fellowship. They're just brothers and sisters, children of the Most High God. And that's the way to think and the way we need to be. But it happens. It's, it's life. It's humanity. Men of renown. And, and this phrase is used just three times in the Bible. Men of renown. It's used here of these Israelites who are thought highly of. It is used in Genesis chapter 6 verse 4 regarding the Nephilim who were twisted offspring, men of renown. And it's used in Ezekiel 23, verse 23, of the young Babylonians who are going to turn on Judah and attack and destroy. Nephilim, Babylonians, and Israelites. What company for men of renown? It's not a flattering description from God's perspective because celebrity tends to take people down and to burn them out, both of which are about to happen. By the way, here at the beginning of this story, Korah is the son of Yitzhar, we're told. Exodus chapter 6, verse 18 tells us Yitzhar is the brother of Amram. So if you're putting the family unit together, realize that Yitzhar is Amram's brother. Amram is Moses' dad. Yitzhar is the uncle of Moses, which makes Korah his first cousin. They're related closely. And this man stands up now. This is what got Miriam and Aaron in so much trouble back in chapter 12. Talking behind Moses' back. Denigrating him. And so now you've got family members once again who are talking down, standing up against. In verse 3, they assembled together against Moses and Aaron, their own cousins, at least Korah, and said to them, you've gone far enough. For all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is in their midst. So why do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? You know what's happening here? Defiance begets defiance. We've just had one act of defiance on the Sabbath day. And there was a severe punishment for that, but it was strict and exacting because that was a violation, a direct defiant violation of the law. And now we've got more defiance rising up. When one heart goes wrong, even his punishment can cause more hearts to be more defiant, to rise up. And notice in verse 3, this is fascinating to me, Korah's claim is that every one of them, all the congregation are holy. So Korah's a universalist, first of all. And more than that, how does the Bible define the human condition? Let me just let you hear it from the word. Romans chapter 3, verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Paul quotes Psalm 14 and Isaiah 53. 
Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the problem. And here Korah is saying, all the congregation's holy. Uh Uh-uh. If all the congregation was holy, they would not need the sacrifices, would they? They wouldn't need the law. They wouldn't need to be led as they so need. Anytime someone claims that the whole church is holy, you know there's defiance afoot. You know there's rebellion on the rise. Verse four, when Moses heard this, he fell on his face. Remember what we said? Moses, you're gonna recognize him in heaven. He's the one with the flat nose because he's always fallen on his face in prayer, in intercession. He fell on his face and then he spoke to Korah and his company saying, tomorrow morning the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to himself, even the one whom he will choose and he will bring near to himself. Do this. Take censers, that's fire pans, for yourselves, Korah and all your company, and put fire in them and lay incense upon them in the presence of the Lord tomorrow and the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the one who is holy. You have gone far enough. You sons of Levi. And then Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it not enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself and to do the service of the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? And and that he has brought you near, Korah, and all your brothers, sons of Levi, with you? Are you... Seeking for the priesthood also, the high priesthood. Remember, the Levites had their priestly duties, but then there's the Aaronic or the Aaronite priesthood, which is the high priesthood. And he says, so now you want that job too? That's like in a church when people start comparing and contrasting their roles and their positions and saying, well, I want to do what that guy's doing. Well, I'd really like to take over her job. And bickering and backstabbing starts to happen. That's defiance. That's just rebellion. Instead of us all learning to be content in what God has called us to do, what has he called you to do? Well, he's called me to be a senior pastor, Rick. What do you think of that? I say, praise the Lord, let's help you plant a church. But it's not going to happen here because we already got one of those. You want the priesthood also? Therefore, Moses said, verse 11, you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. But as for Aaron... Who's he that you grumble against him? It's a great point. You might say, well, Aaron's the high priest. No, Aaron's role is that of the high priest. What do you mean? Other than his role, Aaron is just one of Israel. He is given a specific role by the Lord that belongs to him. But that's not who he is. Who he is is a son of Israel. And yet his position is that of high priest. Korah does not understand. And Moses calls this, for exactly what it is. He sees what's going on. It is rebellion against the Lord. Note that in verse 11. You are gathered together against the Lord. Against the Lord. Listen, anytime someone attacks you simply for following Jesus, they're not attacking you. They're attacking him. They are against the Lord. 
That's what Jesus meant when he said in Matthew 5, 11, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad for your reward in heaven is great for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Listen, if you're taking it on the chin simply because you're following Jesus, then those who are battering you down are not fighting against you. They're fighting against him. That's a great perspective to have, especially when you are in a role or a position in serving in a church fellowship or serving the Lord in some way. Hey, if someone comes against you and you're just following Jesus, they're not against you. So relax. Verse 12. Then Moses sent a summons to Dathan and Aviram, the sons of Eliab. They said, we will not come up. See the defiance? Is it not enough that you brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to have us die in the wilderness, but that you would also lord it over us? Oh yeah, Egypt was a land flowing with milk and honey. They're completely missing. Their perspective is so skewed in their rebellion. Indeed, verse 14, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Would you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And then Moses became very angry and said to the Lord, do not regard their offering. I have not taken a single donkey from them, nor have I done any harm to any of them. And Moses said to Korah, you and all your company be present before the Lord tomorrow, both you and they along with Aaron. Each of you take his fire pan and put incense in it, and each of you bring his censer before the Lord, 250 fire pans, also you and Aaron shall each bring his fire pan. And so they each took his own censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it. And they stood at the doorway of the tent of meeting with Moses and Aaron. The rebellion is intense. Thus Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the doorway of the tent of meeting. <laughs> and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. Once again, uh-oh. They have no idea what their defiance is about to cause it's an intense drama there's the back and forth argument between Quran and Moses at the beginning and now he's saying to all the people and now they're there so the next day and they all show up with their fire pans and their defiance and we're just as good as you and and God's going to pick one of us now to lead and you're done and all the people like lemmings are siding with Quran. it's a mass riotous rebellion so that's what happens is defiance and sin ultimately yields riots and rebellion. And we're seeing it in this wilderness right now, aren't we? And we've been watching it happen in our country. You know, you, you probably were watching the Derek Chauvin trial, or at least were aware the verdict came down. I'm not here to give news commentary. I will tell you I think the verdict is just. I think it's right. I think it's fair based on the evidence and what was shown, and I think jurisprudence Prudence won out the day, and, and the system of justice worked in this incident. It really troubles me that the entire time this trial was going on, small businesses were being smashed up, and cities were burning, and people were rioting in defiance and in rebellion. It's a mess. It's human nature. And so all these are gathered up together, and they're all kind of caught up in this in this mass rebellion, mobs are never a good idea, ever. They never accomplish good things. 
And then the glory of the Lord appears to them all in verse 20. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron saying, separate yourselves from among this congregation that I may consume them instantly. (laughs) I'm taking them all out. That's it. They're going down. Did God mean that? No. What's he doing? Same thing he's continued to do with Moses and Aaron. He's proving their leadership and he's proving their hearts of compassion. And they fell on their faces, verse 22, and said, oh God, God of the spirits of all flesh, when one man sins, will you be angry with the entire congregation? God of the spirits of all flesh. It's a great phrase. It's only used twice in the Bible. Only two times. God of the spirits of all flesh. It's a way of declaring God's authority over the whole person. He's not just an authority over the, the flesh, but over the spirit, over the entirety of the people of Israel, of humanity. He's God of the spirits of all flesh. He created the flesh and he created the spirit that he breathed into the flesh to give us life. So he has absolute authority and absolute right inside and out to declare what's to happen to us. By the way, apply that to the man breaking the Sabbath. Does God not have the right to declare a punishment? Absolute authority over all spirit and flesh. Hebrews 4.13 says there's no creature hidden from his sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He sees it all. And the phrase here, God of the spirits of all flesh, I I just find this interesting and I'm still kind of thinking this one through, but it's used one more time by Moses when he knows he's about to die. And he begins to pray and he's praying, Numbers 27, 16, may the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation, a successor. And he's praying, of course, for Joshua. He's praying that a man who's, who, who both flesh and spirit would be aligned with the Lord. And, and in this prayer, that, that leader is Joshua. And because all flesh, listen, because all flesh is open and laid bare before the Lord with whom we have to do, we follow the one who was spirit and yet John 1.14 became flesh and dwelt among us, the greater Joshua, Jesus. So the God of the spirit of all flesh, himself spirit because God is spirit, put on flesh to dwell among us and become the greater Joshua. I love that. Verse 23. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the congregation and saying, get back from around the dwellings of Korah and Dathan and Aviram. And then Moses arose and went to Dathan and Aviram with the elders of Israel following him. And he spoke to the congregation saying, depart now from the tents of these wicked men and touch nothing that belongs to them or you will be swept away in all their sin. And that is an immediate and literal warning But think about that. How easily are people swept away and caught up in the sin of others? Maybe you didn't intend ever to sin in a certain way, but everyone around you is doing it, and you get swept away. That's why the Bible says, do not be deceived, 1 Corinthians 15, 33. Bad company corrupts good morals. It just happens. You get swept up in it. Get away from the tents of the wicked. Verse 27, so they got back from around the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the doorway of their tents along with their wives and their sons and their little ones. Watch this. 
Moses said, by this you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these deeds, for this is not my doing. What's not your doing, Moses? <laughs> the whole thing. The whole thing. This is, this is the amazing humility of Moses. Delivery from Egypt, seeing him through the sea, to the mount of God, then through the great and terrible wilderness, all the while leading and feeding and interceding. But Moses here, when he has the chance to say, I'm the leader of this people, he says, this is not my doing. I'm just here. I didn't choose me. He did but I'm not the one making it happen. And that, my friends, that is the heart of the humble servant leader. I, I, I told our ministry team earlier this morning, that's, combine that, that if you come together against me when I'm following Jesus back in verse 11, you're actually against the Lord, you're not against me, so don't take it personally. And combine that with, this is not my doing. This is not my doing, this church is not my doing. This fellowship, this building, that whatever we've become in 17 and a half years, it's not my doing. Now, I, I will tell you, I got great tickets to this Super Bowl. I am on the 50-yard line, but I didn't do this. God did this. It's his doing. It's always his doing. And that's where a servant leader understands his or her place on the other hand, when I start to make everything about me, I am in danger of going down. Verse 29. If these men die the death of all men, or if they suffer the fate of all men, then the Lord has not sent me, Moses says very clearly. But if the Lord brings about an entirely new thing and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that is theirs and they descend alive into Sheol, then you will understand that these men have spurned the Lord. As he finished speaking all these words, the ground that was under them split open. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. Watch this. And their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with all their possessions. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol. And the earth closed over them. And they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their outcry. For they said, the earth may swallow us up. Fire also came forth from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. Look at how many died. Think about this. Because of the high-handed rebellion of just a few, Korah, Dathan, Abiram, they all went down along with their families. 250 celebrity leaders in Israel burned out and all because of their defiance and rebellion. And Jesus said, John 15, verse five, I'm the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do a few things. No, nothing. You can't do anything apart from me. Well, I don't know, Lord, I built this great business. It's gonna burn. Yeah, but, but Lord, I've got this great reputation. It's going down. You can't do anything apart from me, anything eternal, anything of lasting value, anything that will go on. All of that, the gold, the precious stones, the silver, all that's eternal, you can only do with me. 
And then Jesus says, John 15, 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. And so in defiance, they go down. In defiance, they're burned. But note the language in verse 32. The earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up and their households and all the men who belonged to Korah with their possessions. I can tell you something with absolute that the children didn't die. It says households, Rick. Yeah, their households. The word for households there, bait, is their tents. Their dwelling places went down. But that doesn't mean their families. It doesn't mean the children. And as a matter of fact, we know that the sons were spared. Because part of it is it says all the men who belonged to Korah. And the word men in the Hebrew is very specifically, get this, jot this down, men. <laughs> so they weren't children. So we're not talking about the families of Korah. And we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that they did not die, that the children didn't die. And we know for two reasons. One, because Numbers 26, 11 says his sons did not die. So that's pretty obvious. And Eva actually had to point that out to me today because I was talking about the other reason why, which I think is absolutely wonderful and it is that the sons of Korah, does that sound familiar? Went on to be psalmists. They wrote Psalm 42, a masculine of the sons of Korah, a teaching psalm. As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. How different are the sons of Korah from their father and his rebellion. And I love that because you are not bound to repeat the sins of the father. That every generation has the opportunity to choose the Lord or choose to rebel. And the sons of Korah went on to be worship leaders in Israel. Verse 36, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, say to Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, that he shall take up the censers out of the midst of the blaze, for they are holy, and you scatter the burning coals abroad. As for the censers, those fire pans of these men who have sinned at the cost of their lives, let them be made into hammered sheets for a plating of the altar, since they did present them before the Lord and they are holy. This is amazing. They presented their fire pans in absolute defiance, but they presented their fire pans before the Lord. So guess what? The fire pans are holy. <laughs> Simply by being presented to God, that's how perfect his holiness is. So he says, take those fire pans, melt them down. They shall be a sign for the sons of Israel. So Eliezer the priest took the bronze censers, which the men who, were, uh, which the men who were burned had offered, and they hammered them out as plating for the bronze altar. As a reminder to the sons of Israel that no layman who is not of the descendants of Aaron should come near to burn incense before the Lord so that he will not become like Korah and his company just as the Lord had spoken to him through Moses. So they took all these fire pans, melted down the bronze, and made plating. Now, we don't know if, if the plating was like then placed around the altar. Probably not. We're probably talking about a big lid that then would sit on top of the altar when it wasn't in use. And that plating would be a reminder, oh yeah, the fire pans of the rebellious. Oh yeah. And it would go on the bronze altar because that was the altar of judgment. 
That's where the sacrifices took place. So it spoke of the justice of the Lord. But when you think about this, why there were so many problems just inherent with these guys, these 250 and, and Quran and all of those who were with him, note that their censors were all wrong. What do you mean? The censors to offer incense to the Lord had to be made of gold. These were bronze. Secondly, note their lineage was wrong. Some, not all, were Levites, but none were of the line of Aaron. Only the Aaronite priesthood could bring the gold censer to offer incense. Only Aaron and his sons. So none of them should even have thought that they could do that. Their fire was wrong. It was not from the altar. So they lit the fire themselves. Remember the strange fire of Nadab and Avahu that got them burned out? The fire was only to be taken from the altar to be put on the gold censer carried by the Aaronite priest in to offer the incense before the Lord in the right place. It was all wrong. Their incense was wrong. What do you mean? Some have suggested that because it wasn't from the priesthood itself that it wasn't even the right kind of incense. But whether or not it was, it was still wrong because their incense was not offered as intercession. It was offered in self-importance. The incense was offered to pray for the people, not to prove your worth or value. Everything's wrong with the picture, and their hearts were wrong. Not one was Godward. And so this terrible rebellion took place, and you would think, okay, that's awful. Ground opens up. By the way, and, and Josiah pointed this out today, I think it's interesting. Ground opened up and swallowed up all the men, none of the children, which meant the ground was discriminating that's supernatural, my friends. That is an act of God that the ground didn't just go honk and a big earthquake and everybody went in. No, it was only the defiant ones, only the rebellious ones that were swallowed up. Interesting. But you think, well, good, now it's over. It ain't over yet. Verse 41, but on the next day, all the congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Are you kidding me? saying, you're the ones who have caused the death of the Lord's people. It came about, however, when the congregation had assembled against Moses and Aaron, and they turned toward the tent of meeting, and behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. This is just, you know, it's a pattern, isn't it, with these people? They rebel, and God shows up. And then Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, get away from among this congregation, that I may consume them instantly. Once again, proving their hearts, they fell on their faces. <laughs> Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put in it fire from the altar and lay incense on it and then bring it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them for wrath has gone forth from the Lord and the plague has begun and indeed it had. Aaron took it as Moses had spoken and ran into the midst of the assembly for behold, the plague had begun among the people, so he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. That is, Aaron did his job. The high priest went in there and was interceding for the people, letting the incense go up before the Lord. Spare this people. He must have been praying. He took his stand, verse 48, between the dead and the living so that the plague was checked. But those who died by the plague were 14,700. Beside those who died on account of Korah, and then Aaron returned to Moses at the doorway of the tent of meeting, for the plague had been checked. 
This all began, now think back with me. This all began with the high-handed rebellion of one man. One guy who thought, I'm not keeping Sabbath. I don't care about God's requirement of the Sabbath day. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I feel like picking up sticks. These are not random stories, my friend. This is all divinely intentional. There is a process going on here. It begins with God seeking to reset faith and hope among the people. But one man decides to do his own thing. Rejecting the very rest that God offered his people and kicking open the door of rebellion. And it's remarkable, isn't it, how the sin of one man can result in the deaths of so many. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man's sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world. The sin was not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45. And please go back and look this up later on. But it is written, Paul says, the first man, Adam, became a living soul, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual's not first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy, that is, dying. So as is the heavenly, also are all those who are heavenly, that is, living forever. Just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. I love what Paul says. Why is this? Because the Lord is the God of the spirits of all flesh, and his desire is to make the earthy heavenly, to make the flesh in you and me and our spirits eternal. And so, in the same way with this last story, Aaron took his stand between the dead and the living, interceding for the people. That's just what Jesus did. He took his stand, interceding for us, our greater high priest than Aaron, and he said in John 5, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death and into life. Jesus Christ is the great reset. Let's pray. Father, your word is so obvious and intentional when we pause and recognize what you're doing. And as we see, Lord, your heart to reset opportunity, to bring the people into the promised land, even as you begin retraining and, and helping them rethink the promise, we see rebellion set in. And Father, we know it doesn't take much. It just takes one. My prayer, Father, is that you would erase and wash out and cleanse us of all rebellion. That you would take even the slightest minutia of defiance in our fellowship and Lord, would you just remove it? I pray not that you remove a person. I pray that you remove the defiance of the heart. 
And that by faith in Jesus Christ, we will continue to be a fellowship of believers who have been purified by you and who are walking with you. And though we stumble and though we fall, Lord, may our sin not be sin of rebellion and defiance. We know there's a sacrifice, the offering of Jesus that brings us life. Father, I pray for the church and the world. As I share with a friend of mine today, the church was not ready for COVID. The church was not ready for government shutdowns. The church has not been ready for the rebellions and the panic and the lawlessness that we're seeing throughout this country and around the world. But I think we're starting to wake up. And I ask, Lord Jesus, that you would purify our hearts. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God, and we want to see you, Lord. I pray, Father, that you will draw us after you. Help us to long for the things you long for, to be passionate about what you're passionate about, to have compassion on those who need your compassion. And for ourselves, Father, to seek first the kingdom and your righteousness so that we might truly be followers of yours and we might come into the promise of our eternal salvation at home with you, Jesus. Now, we love you, Lord. We're thankful for what you're doing. And we welcome, Lord, your training and your teaching. In Jesus' name, amen.